so I would imagine with as many people as we have in this room, there are many of us who have either planned or been a part of planning for a wedding. Uh, Kelly and I, about 19 years ago, were in the middle of our engagement, and we were engaged for 15 long months. Uh, now, real quickly, just by a show of hands on both campuses, how many of you were engaged for 15 or more months? Bless your hearts. Bless your hearts. Um, and so one of the reasons uh, that I oftentimes look about those times is how miserable that was in many ways. And you're here like, oh, man, you're such a loser because I'm sure you're thinking about what all the things I might be thinking about as a guy. But here, that's not it at all. What I am thinking about was all the planning, all the prepping, all the magazines, all the the suits, all the dresses, all the things that you have to look at, all the flower colors, all these things. And, and my wife, the way she's wired is she would love my opinion on almost everything in her life. Anybody married to a wife that needs your opinion on lots of things? Yes. And I have learned over the years to bless her by giving a very kind and generous and gracious opinion. Not all the time, but I try, okay? But here's the deal. The reason I share that is I want you to just imagine that you're in the middle of some planning like that. And let's just say it was a night similar to that of last night. A little bit cool outside. Uh, you're, you're kind of nestled up in the living room and you've got a blanket on and you're just kind of browsing. But back in the day when we were engaged, you didn't have things like Pinterest. Uh, anybody like praise the Lord for Pinterest today? Yes. Okay. Uh, there's a few guys in here like, I don't know if I should or not. Yeah, you should. Praise the Lord for it. Some great ideas, some awesome pictures. Okay. Uh, and so here's the deal. Just imagine though, you're in the middle of this planning, you're browsing Pinterest. You've, you've got your computer up, your iPad up, your phone up, and you, you've got different like browsers up. Like you got, you, you've got some, ton of different stuff. You're flipping back and forth. You're looking at dresses. You're looking at what your gentlemen are going to wear. You're, you're looking at venues. You're looking at flowers. You're looking at all these things. You're dreaming about these. Now, there are some of you that you do this and you're, you don't even have anybody. Praise the Lord for you too, okay? Because that's optimism and the Lord is going to come through for, for you one day, okay? Uh, but you're doing that. It's a nice, cool night and, and you're just kind of checking all this stuff out. And then out of nowhere a bright light appears. And this bright light not only appears, but at the end of the bright light, there is an angelic being. And last week, as we started this series called Do Not Be Afraid, we talked about angel encounters. And it's not something that happens every day for us. Matter of fact, you don't see that being a common practice in Scripture, although it does occur some. This angel appears. And listen, real quickly, this angel is not like the angels that we think of. Like, y- y'all know the little precious moments angel? You know, that little cute little thing? That's not what this is. Y'all know the other, the one that you see around Valentine's, a little chubby creature, and he's got underwear on? Now, that would be really creepy if he showed up in the middle of your Pinterest, right? That's not what this is. It's not even what you have in your nativity set. Matter of fact, the nativity set right outside of here, uh, it's not that. It's not this angelic-looking woman with long blonde hair and blue eyes that happens to have two wings. That's not it. Isaiah tells us that it's like this creature that is not of this world, completely divine, six wings, eyes all over it, holy, majestic. Like It's creepy so much that everybody's response is fear. They drop to the ground. They're afraid. Like, you see this. We saw an experience last week of a similar type fear that overtook a guy named Zechariah. And then here it is, six months later, 
This same angel that appeared in a, in a place in Jerusalem to a guy named Zechariah in the middle of a temple is going to appear about 70 miles north of Jerusalem in a little obscure place called Nazareth. You get to see the narrative in Luke chapter 1. It's something that many of us, regardless if we've been in church for uh, all our lives or we're just kind of checking the church out, we've probably heard a little bit about the narrative, about an angel appearing to a woman who was betrothed to to a man and his name was Joseph. Today we're going to read about it. If you have your Bibles, you can see with us in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel are four books uh, that begin this this part in our Bible called the New Testament. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels are a fancy word for the good news. It just means the good news of Jesus. And so we have this account of a guy named Luke who gives us an accurate depiction and great detail about what happens in this narrative. And he picks up uh, the story about uh, this, this woman in verse 26. And so if you don't have a Bible, we're going to put it for you up on the screen on both campuses. And in verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, the same one that appeared to Zechariah uh, prior to this experience, six months earlier, now appears to this woman named Mary on a cool evening night while she's thinking about the plans to be married to her Prince Charming. I mean, I want you to think about this. I mean, in her life and her experience, she's, she's probably, uh, I don't know, she's probably not flipping through uh, magazines, but she's, she's got this scroll of papyrus right there in front of her. She's like checking out this incredible, this deal like she's going to have. She's thinking about venues, planning, because listen, in the Jewish day and time, that custom, they were going to throw a huge celebration. They were going to consummate their wedding, and it was going to be a party. There was planning involved. You had to have choice wine and food. It was going to be a celebration. And I don't want you to pretend to think that this young maiden girl uh, was, was just, in a sense, carrying through her lot of life, and there was no planning to be done. Like, she's in the middle of a, an important moment in her life, and this angel appears. And it appears in the city of, uh, of Nazareth, the city of Galilee, named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, one of the reasons that I'm so thankful for this part of the narrative is the reason that most of us probably just pass right over. And the reason I'm so thankful about it is that when you think about this story, we think about this girl named Mary, I, I can't help but think through just ordinary in a sense. I think, I think in some ways average. I think lowly, in some ways probably despised. Now listen, we have uh, people in the faith around us that in some ways would venerate Mary to a place that I don't see deemed in Scripture. And so what that means is, is oftentimes people can view Mary as the chosen woman in the Scripture. And while she is a chosen woman in the Scripture, and you'll see through the story of the Bible that there were some great things God used her for, what I want to be careful of is to think that somehow she was this perfect woman who had never sinned, who was the only one that could possibly carry the divine child. That's not what you see in Scripture. Matter of fact, when you see Luke write this narrative, here's what I see. I see a a, a girl who's in the midst of her planning, just like her Jewish counterparts would have been. I see her betrothed to a man that was set up by her family and his, planning to do what all Jewish people would do, and that would be betrothed to have uh, a family. I see her marrying a man that was going to be of the house of David, but I see them coming in many ways from uh, him, his side, maybe some prominence from the house of David, but her side, an, uh, an uncommon virgin girl 
uh, or a very common virgin girl that lived in this little uh, place called Nazareth in a province of Galilee, tucked in the hills uh, north of Jerusalem, about 15 miles west of the Sea of Galilee, off the major trade routes. Most of the things they did, they probably took care in that community. So trading, farming, all of it was pretty much self-sufficient and self-reliant in that community. And, And here it is. God would show up and he would look for a person of faithfulness in the midst of that. But here's the first thing I want you to understand. Uh, All throughout Scripture, time and time and time again, from King David, to people like Daniel, to people like Mary, to people like the the, the disciples and the apostles, to people like you and I. You need to know this, and the Lord needs to allow this to set in your mind right now in this moment. That God always uses unconventional means to reveal his undeniable power. That's the way God works. He always uses unconventional means to reveal his undeniable power. So maybe you're here and you go, you know what? I showed up to this place because I heard I could come and be myself. I've heard or I've seen y'all's t-shirts, the slogan, this no perfect people allowed, which is, is a slogan. But the reason we share those with you and the reason we would love to bless you with that is because we just want you to realize that none of us have it together apart from Jesus Christ. I think many of us think about Romans 7, the words that Paul would say, I know there is nothing good that lives in me, verse 18, except for what Christ has done. Uh, As you think about the church in Corinthians, Paul goes, hey, there was a time where I was as such as these. Like all of us have had places and times in our lives where we look and we know we were ordinary, average, ill-equipped, we just didn't have it together. Anybody in here go, I feel like I've been there before. Anybody? Raise your hand. Okay, if you've never been there, then listen, the Lord's about to get you there. (laughs) And the reason why is because that's when God does his best work. It's when people realize that God does things with undeniable power through ordinary, average, ill-equipped people. And so if you're here and you go, I feel average, I feel ill-equipped. I feel ordinary. I don't feel spectacular at all. Then listen, you are in fantastic company. And not only among this place, but in the scriptures. Matter of fact, Paul writes to the church of Corinth and he says something really profound to them in 22 through 29. And I want you to see it. I'm going to provide verse 22 simply because it goes along with last week's message. If you didn't get a chance to catch up on it, or maybe you're here for the very first time and you're like, hey, I need to go check it out. You can go to stonewindchurch.com, go to our resources tab. Uh, go to the current message series and check out last week. The reason I share that is because the response that Zechariah had last week when the angel appeared to him was, hey, how do I know that the Lord is speaking? How do I know that he's telling me the truth? And I look and I read my Bible and I'm like, "Um, an angel just appeared to you, dude. (laughs) Like, you probably should believe, right? But Paul is addressing this challenge that's been happening in the Jewish culture forever. Look at it in verse 22. This is what he says. He goes, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Now, the reason I included that is because you need to know, like the Jewish people always wanted a sign and they got them, didn't they? I mean, from a burning bush to parting sea to wet fleeces, like God has always used signs and wonders and miracles in in the Jewish narrative. But what's crazy is then you get to the Greeks 
And the Greeks don't need signs. What do they want? They want wisdom. They want more knowledge. They want philosophical ideas. And I can't help but think, and I'm like, we are a combination of both. Like half the room, you are in your faith right now. And you're like, Lord, if you just give me one more sign, I'll believe. I'll trust you. I just need one more sign. That's what you're asking for. The others of you, you're like, I got all the signs I need. I just need more wisdom. I need more knowledge. Like, I don't have enough knowledge to do things that you need me to do. And you're just like, you're always searching and acquiring for more knowledge, more philosophical ideas. And you go, I can't move forward unless I have a sign or I have knowledge. And listen, I want you to know that you're not alone in that. But that's not how God's working anymore. God's not, God's not always giving signs. Can He? Yes. But does he choose to do that all the time? No. And most often, probably not. Does God think that knowledge is important? Us to know his word, discern his word, and to use his word? Yes. But is knowledge the proverbial end-all, be-all? No. What we don't need is smarter sinners. We need people who will know his word and will delight in his truth and walk in it. And then look what he says. He says, but we preach Christ crucified is what Paul says. A stumbling block to the Jews and follow the Gentiles. Why? Because he goes, Jesus isn't all that spectacular when you start thinking about it. Like his reason is not to give you one more sign. His reason wasn't to, to heal the sick man for the means of a miracle. It was to cause him to repent of his sin and to live a life worthy of the manner in which he's been called. That's totally different than what they were looking for. He, he wasn't there just to give knowledge. Matter of fact, the half-brother of James says, hey, we don't want to be deceived. We don't want to, uh, in some ways, hear the word and then forget to do what it says. Because that's craziness. We don't want to be whitewashed tombs. We don't look good on the outside and empty on the inside. So he continues, verse 24, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, he does this. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. So even God's most foolish thoughts, which there are none, are wiser than any of men's most wise thoughts. The weakness of God is stronger than anything that men can produce. For consider your calling, brothers. And I love this. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of us in here are of noble birth. Not many of us are all that powerful. He says, but look. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, this is where you say amen, church. Like, like, seriously, like, it's like, oh, wow, thank you. And here's why. Because even though you feel average, ill-equipped, and ordinary, you're in good company. And the reason why is because God has always used unconventional means to reveal his undeniable power. And listen, that's not just true of you, but it is true. And this girl who is browsing, uh, dreaming her wedding day, an angel appears to her, a common, ordinary, average girl from a place of Nazareth. Matter of fact, as Nathaniel, one of the disciples being recruited, they're recruiting and they go, hey, we want you to come and learn about Jesus, this, this guy who's changing the world. In John chapter 1, verse 26, Nathaniel goes, I didn't know anything good could come from Nazareth. That's who this girl was. Ordinary, ill-equipped, average. And God says, but I can use her. And so an angel appears and here's what he says, what all angels do. Greetings, O favored one. 
Now, I don't know about you, but that's what he says. He goes, and then he goes, the Lord is with you. And I love her response. Her, her response was like, praise the Lord. Let's go. No, her, she goes, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what the sort of greeting that might be. Now, here's the reason why is because if you can put yourself in this narrative where she was and you're dreaming of your future plans, you're thinking about skipping away for a week to the Mediterranean and enjoying the beach together. Long days, awesome nights. All of that interrupted in this space and time by an angel who goes, oh, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. And I don't know about you, but her response is much like mine would be, which would be, oh, snap. My life is about to change. Anybody in here like, oh, man. Now, I know y'all would have chose a different word, some of you, and that's between you and the Lord. But that's what I want you to feel here. Her life is about to be interrupted. And the angel says to her, do not be afraid. Church, do you see those words? Words that you'll hear over and over and over again in this series. So I want you to say them with me on both campus. The angel appeared to her and said, do not be afraid. I don't know about you. Those are words that are so much easier to say than actually allow them to set and resonate in our hearts. I mean, here it is. He's trying to comfort her and console her. And he says again, for you have been favored with God. And so this angel is going, hey, listen, you are God's person. Like you, you are going to be the one. And, and here's what I want you to realize. The second thing that's really important today is that when God begins to inform people of his plan, it is going to feel intimidating. It just always does. And here's the reasons why. It's because when God informs you of his plan, the reason it's intimidating is number one is because oftentimes his invitation feels more like an interruption. Like you just go, what, am I going to have to put my whole life on pause? God, if you're going to use me, is Joseph still a part of the narrative? Like, do I get to still marry this man? Or is, is he the one for me? And do you know all the wrestling and confusion? I mean, I remember breaking up with girls because I thought God wanted me to do something. That was a line I used once. I know, lowly and despised, I know. Why? Because God's plan, when he informs you of them, they're, they're intimidating. They're an interruption. They feel like an inconvenience. Think about it. Here's what he says, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call him the name of Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Wow, like she knows, she realizes this is him. This is the one that all of the prophets spoke about. This is the hope of the world. Uh, there is a slight chance that she has heard of all the shakings that must be happening around Zechariah and Elizabeth. There is a chance that she realizes that God is up to something. But then her thoughts go to where my thoughts would go. And that is in the midst of God informing you of something, not only does it feel like an interruption and a little bit inconvenient, but it seems inconceivable. Look at her question. She goes, okay, that's great, but how? Like, how are you going to pull this off? How is this going to be since, number one, I'm a virgin. I mean, she's got a myriad of questions, but one of the, probably the best questions is, okay, how are you going to pull this off if, if I've never been with a man? 
It seems impossible, doesn't it? And that's what happens is regardless of what it is that God's calling you to, what he's leading you to, informing you of, oftentimes it feels like it's impossible. And you're here and you're like, well, I'm not even going to carry the Christ child. God's not asking me to do something that big. Listen, I want you to understand from big to small, anytime God informs you of his purposes and his plans for your life, it can feel overwhelming. And the reason why is because oftentimes he is, in a sense, asking us to align our heart with his. And he is, in many ways, seeing where our faith is. And here's what we need to know. We said this last week. Fear is not the absence of faith, but it is faith in the wrong thing. A lot of times we just put our faith in the wrong thing. Sometimes we put it in what we think is conceivable, what we think is normal. And listen, can you imagine being in her spot? Here it is. The angels appeared. And this is what he says in response to your question. The angel of the Lord says, Well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will, that will be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and in this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Amen. So what seems impossible to us is possible with God. What it seems inconceivable seems conceivable. What seems like an interruption really is an invitation. And what he's doing is he's saying anybody who's ordinary or average or ill-equipped can be a part of my plan and I can use you for extraordinary things if you'll trust me. But then I think about her response. Like what, would, what could Mary do with this? Like what could you and I do with this? Here it is, God's called her to something. God's calling you to something. And in the midst of all of her planning about education, future plans, family, children, honeymoon, celebration. I mean, like, Lord, am I going to put all this on hold for a baby in which didn't even come of a natural way? Like, that seems impossible, inconceivable. It seems like a big interruption. And the question is, what do you do? Well, I think you do what Scripture calls us to do. And Romans 8.31 just simply says, hey, what do we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The question is, if God is calling you to something, are you going to do it? And here's what you need to know. My third thing as we think through this narrative is you need to know that God's direction for your life is often very different than your desires. And we live in a culture full of dreams and desires. And what I see and read in Scripture, oftentimes God's plans and His direction are far different than our desires. There's some of you that in this moment in time, you know that very well. Like you have desires in your heart of hearts. You know a direction you would like to go. You have some plans. You have some dreams. Some of those are based around your family. Some of those are based around children. Some of those are based around jobs. Some of those are, are replaced about um, uh, building uh, a place, buying land. Some of them are based off of um, scholarships and uh, sporting accolades. Some of them are based off of friendships. There are a myriad of things that we would love to see God direct along with our desires. But that's not always how the Lord works. Matter of fact, what we have to think through is this, is that a lot of us, we have feelings. But you need to know that our feelings can lead us to places that can't always be trusted. And so while feelings are real, they are not always what we would call reliable. 
And so we have to guard our heart and our mind, and we have to think through this, and we have to begin taking God at His word. Because we're all warring against several things. I don't know about you, I war every day against just fleshly desires. What do I want to do? Because it doesn't always line up with what the Lord wants me to do. I war against selfishness. Just being selfish from, from the very things I spend my time and money in doing. I, mean, I war against unbelief. Not trusting God and putting faith in Him in the right things. I war against self-reliance. Just thinking I can muster up the strength to do it all on my own. Anybody y'all resonate with you like in this? Like, yes. I war even with planning my own life out, like dreams and hopes and aspirations. There's many of us that we do the same thing. Some of you, like, think about just them. Like, they're think, thinking, how do I get away to the Mediterranean for a couple of days? And we think, well, how do I get away on an excursion for a week? And some of us, we have it on our calendar a year from now, or even two years from now. Or we have trips and plans and dreams and all these things. For some of us, we have master plans about when we're going to buy land, when we're going to build a house, all these things. And the half-brother of Jesus, James, he, he gives us some challenges there as we think through our desires. And here's what he says about our desires. Pay close attention, and I, I will tell you, the conviction meter starts going up now, okay? So just know that. James, verse 13 says, Come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He goes, be careful when you say over the next year, we're going to hit record sales and we're going to have all these margins in our business. He goes, hey, just be careful about that. Um, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? He goes, be careful to not plan out your life too much. Why? Because of verse uh, 14, the latter part, he goes, for you are a mist that appears for a little while and advances. He goes, your life is short, it's momentary, and it's fleeting. He goes, but we plan our lives like we're going to be here forever, don't we? He goes, but you got to guard against that. Now think about Mary and her plans for just a second. In the midst of all her planning and all her desires and all her Pinterest ads and all the things she's doing, the angel of the Lord appears and goes, hey, I want to invite you to be something. You're favored by God and you're going to bear the Christ child. He's going to be called Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor. He's going to be the Mighty One, as Isaiah says. And you're the one who's going to deliver this baby. Are you willing to put your plans on hold for what God wants? Are you willing to let God's direction win out over your desires, over your fleshly response, over what you really are hoping for? Instead, we ought to say, instead of planning everything out, James goes, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all is, is, is boasting that's of evil. Like he goes, when you think that you are the God of your life, even though you don't recognize it in all your planning, he goes, you're just arrogant. The Old Testament, the way Solomon, uh, wisest man ever would say it, he would say, you're a fool. When we do what we think in our short life is our desire, he goes, you're a fool. Now, here's the deal. I am a fool, and so I made a list of areas that I've been foolish, and I want to share them with you because I think that this list may be some areas that you go, I, I, I know I've been a fool too. And, and here's why. Because in verse 17, James gives us the answer to all of our challenges. It's a, it's a scripture that popped up in, in, in my life about a month ago as we were working through some things in our journey group. It's a, it's a scripture that many of us don't ponder on and think about because we think about cutting all the bad things out of our life. We don't think about the good that we ought to do. So verse 17, James says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for it is what? 
for him it is sin. Everybody say with me, it is what? Sin. Sin, Okay. Uh, The reason that I want you to say that loud with me now is because as the list goes on, it'll get less and less. Okay. Um, The question is, is this, like, what is the Lord's calling you to do that you're not doing? For me, I know the Lord has called me to shepherd my wife and family in ways that honor him. And there have been many seasons and times where I've neglected to do that really well. With intentionality, I haven't put my marriage and my children, parenting and loving and shepherding my wife in a way that honors the Lord. I knew I should, but I failed to do it. When I did that, it's called what? Sin. Sin. When I know that... um, I should see the church, the people of God as God's people, dearly loved, chosen by him to be used for his purpose. When I see the church for anything other than that, again, what? It's sin. When I know that I should shepherd and care for the church, but I find myself being lazy and apathetic, it's what? Sin. When I think about my life, and I, I think about it in the context of not allowing the Lord to plan out my business life, my dating life, my social life, and all that I do. When I do what I want to do in all of those areas, the Scripture would call that what? Sin. When we are, for many of us, content just to show up because we think we ought to go to church out of obligation, it's a sin. There are many of us that you're not here out of obligation. You're here because you're seeking a sensation. You want a feeling. And if you can get a feeling of what it is that you're searching for, then you go, I'll find the place. And if you're searching for out of obligation or out of sensation, then it's a sin. Because the reason we are part of God's body is because we know that's the right thing to do because it's the hope of the world to people who know they need Jesus and don't know that they need Jesus. When we, when we think through living in community with other people and we don't do it, we know that God's called us to live with other people in our life that can help us affirm the word of God, and we choose not to do that, then that's what? Sin. Sin. When we know that we're called to parent effectively, but because it's tiring, because it's loathsome, because it, it costs a lot, we, it's hard to shepherd our kids' heart. Because most of all, it's like it's just exhausting When we know we ought to do a better job and we choose not to do that, that's called sin. When we know that when we know that we should serve people, the scriptures tell us that we should serve people within the body and outside of the body. And we choose not to do that for a variety of reasons. Time, because we feel ineffective or insufficient or we just don't have it together yet. If we don't do that, it's called what? Sin. Y'all hear how it's getting less and less? It's called sin, right? When we know that the Scripture and the Lord has called us not to just give out of compulsion, but to give generously with an eager and exciting heart to the Lord and His work. And we know we ought to give, but we choose not to. It's called what? Sin. And it doesn't matter if we, well, you know what, I just can't. It's just not a good time. Listen, God's direction never really lines up with our desires. There's not a good time to start giving or serving or living in, conven- uh, in, in community. Why? Because it's all inconvenient. Can I tell you that one of the most inconvenient things in my entire life is my journey group? I'm just being honest. I've shared that with them honestly, and they know that. Why? Because for a few reasons. One is because it's a night of the week that 
that I could easily find something better to do or more enjoyable in many ways, right? But I need their community. I know that they're going to press in on some things in my life that aren't always what I want to hear, but I need their wisdom. It is very inconvenient, is what I want you to understand. It is an interruption in our life. And here's the deal. If we see God's desires as inconceivable, impossible, I can't fit another thing in my schedule. There's no way I can give to this because I'm already tapped out. If that's your view, then you're always going to lean more towards your desires than God's direction. And that's the purpose of all this. But when we know in our hearts we ought to do something and we choose not to do it, It is choosing not to obey God and trust Him completely. And at the basis of all of our challenges, it comes down to trust. Who will we trust? And why do we struggle with that? I always think about this question, well, how was Jesus so faithful? Like how, because Jesus says at the end of His itinerant ministry, which is just three short years, I've accomplished everything that I was supposed to accomplish. I ask the question, how? Like there were people that you chose not to heal or, there were things that you, there were people that you didn't let follow you. So how do you know that, that you do exactly what the God wants you to do? I had a friend come up to me at the end of our first service and she goes, okay, I hear all of what you're saying. I agree with everything, but I'm struggling because I don't hear him at all. I just don't hear him. How do I know? How do you know? And Jesus says it in a way I think is so plain to me and plain to all of us here. Jesus says, In John chapter 6, verse 38, he goes, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Two chapters over, in John chapter 8, verse 28, the latter part of it, he goes, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father has taught me. The question is, is how did Jesus trust God's direction? He goes, I just did everything my Father told me to do. You want to make your life count? Do everything that God encouraged you to do. You go, well, how, how, how do I know that? Like, I just, do I need a sign? Do I just need more knowledge? No, the Jews needed signs. The Greeks need knowledge. Last week we talked about you have the Word of God. And that's what I shared with her. I said, if you will search the Word of God, Peter tells us that everything that pertains to life and godliness, he has spoken on. And this is how we have a love relationship with God. We read his word and we obey. We hear his instructions because he has spoken plainly and clearly that even the most foolish, the most ordinary person can understand when you seek to know the Lord. And he speaks about marriage, parenting, business, life, wisdom, godliness, giving, serving, community, family, God's family, everything you and I need to know. The question is, is do we want to trust him in that? So what God says do, do, and you will have a faithful life. Do you have a lot of money? Maybe not. Will you have a lot of accolades and success? Maybe not. Will you have lots of promotions? Maybe not. I don't know. But you know what you will have? is faithfulness in your life. And I love Mary's faithfulness. Out of all the things she could have said, look at verse 38, what she says. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your sign. Hey, let it be according to, to your great wisdom. No, let it be according to your word. God spoke clearly and plainly. And he goes, now let it be. So you go, well, how is God speaking to me in this day and age? Listen, God is using 
pastors, leaders, people in your life to speak to you, community, friends, family, that when they line that up with the Word of God and the Spirit of God, you can go, I think I'm making a wise decision. And see, some of us, you think, oh, well, they keep telling me I need to do this or I need to do that. And listen, the best way I can explain it is this. If you are in a hospital and you are sick, but you've deemed yourself healthy, and you yank up all the machines that are hooked to you, and you walk out of the hospital, and nurses and doctors run you down, and they look at you in the eye, and they say, you are sick, and you say, I'm not as sick as you tell me that I am. And they say, you're going to die. And you go, well, I'm not going to die, and I'm not worried about it. I feel fine. And they say, listen, you're free to go because we can't hold you here, but you need to know that when you walk out our doors, you're going against medical advice. You do what you want. You need to know that what we're talking about today is trusting God is what God desires. And many of us go against medical advice. We don't all love doctors in our life, do we? We don't all want to hear bad news. We don't all want people to encourage us or even in some ways feel discouraged by the truth that they share with us. But the bottom line is this is the word of God is what Mary settled her heart on. And she says, let it be according to your goodness and according to your word. Now, if you're Mary, you might have said something different. You might have had a plausibility of excuses. You you might have asked several questions. You might have done it, but you might have grumbled and complained about the whole thing. Anybody in here like, that's probably me. I would have probably grumbled and complained about it. You don't even want to admit it, right? Some of you would have done it with a begrudging attitude, but here it is. She says, I will serve you, and, and, and I'll do it according to your word. Can I just help you hear this? And this will be the last thing I really want to just say is this. The only time we will have the response in the heart of Mary is when we have the ability to rely on God for the results. And so what you realize, and I realize this, is that our response will always be determined by our ability to rely on God for the results. It all comes back to a trust issue. Is God really able to be trusted in this? What he's calling me to do, what I'm fearful of, that gospel conversation, that person I should speak to, whether it be in Home Depot, whether it be at the restaurant, or whether it be your next door neighbor, or whether it be your cousin or your mother-in-law. That prayer that you have been encouraged to pray with someone, but you're like, I can't pray. I don't do that in public. But the Lord put it on your heart. And you go, I didn't do that. He goes, you should. Why? Because it's all about trusting God for the results. And I want you to realize that far too many of us are disobedient simply because of a lack of faith. And so I pray that the Lord would impress upon your heart these words today. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I love you. Regardless of how broken you are, how messed up you are, I want to pursue you. I want you to know my hope. I want you to know that I'm for you. I want you to realize that I can have a purpose and a plan for you. Now, are you willing to leave the things that you love? Are you willing to put your desires on hold and follow me? Or is your fear going to keep you from being faithful? I don't know about you, I want to end with this question. And it's a question I want to do as we pray in closing. And so if you would just do me a favor, and on both campuses, let's just bow our heads, and we're just going to prepare to pray and close out our time together. As, as we're bowing our heads on both locations, I just want to ask this one question, and I pray that the Lord would, would use this 
in your life and in mine, is there an area that God is calling you to trust Him in, to obey Him in? Like He's asked you to do something and you've struggled to do it. Is there something that God's calling you to and you struggle to do it? For a myriad of reasons, you have your list. It's probably a very good one. But you go, I'm just struggling to be obedient. If that's you in this room, you would say, I am struggling. If that's you in, in a middle school gym in Edgewood, you go, I'm struggling to obey God as he's asking me to do something. Would you just slip your hand up in the air so that we can just pray together for you? You go, I'm called to do something, but I'm struggling to do it. Heavenly Father, you know that in every place, all of us are called to do things. From, from caring for our marriages, to not giving up hope on our children, to, to making sure that we align our hearts in a faith community, to making sure that we are uh, members of your body, making sure that we live in devotion to you, from reading and abiding in your word on, on a daily basis, to um, seeking and pursuing you, to giving financially, to serving you, all of these myriad of things. Lord, there are so many things. So sharing a word with a friend, uh, to giving counsel in difficult places. Lord, there's so many things that we are called to do that we struggle to do. And Lord, for this group of people in these two rooms, Lord, you know it, that what it is and where they are. But I ask for your wisdom, your discernment, and most of all, the courage to trust you, to rely on you for the results. Lord, I remember the day that you called us to plant this church. And it felt like an inconvenience. It felt impossible, inconceivable. It was difficult. I was going to give up so many fleshly things. And in my flesh, I didn't want to do it, but I couldn't get away from the fact that if I did not do what you called me to, I would be living in disobedience. And so, Lord, you, you gave me the courage and the strength to take a faith step. And through that, I have seen you do immeasurably more than I could ever ask or imagine. You have taken care of the results. But, Lord, I would be lying if I believed that was ever easy in my life. It was difficult. And, Lord, I know that trusting you is inconvenienced. It's it's hard. It seems impossible. So God, would you give us the faith to trust you? And will you lead us by your spirit? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.